Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me? It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if I fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in Israel, I had the chance to... um, go to the traditional site. It's traditional. I don't know if it's actually the place. One of the cool things about going to Israel and having a guide is they'll tell you where it, where it really happened. They're like, we take you here. This is where it really happened. But actually, it's, it's over there, something like that. But one of the places we stopped is called the Senegal. The Senegal is the location of an old mosque, or I think it's a 14th century mosque. And it's the place, the traditional place of the upper room. When you go, it's above, you go up into this upper room, there's pillars that come up. At the top of the pillars are capitals. And at the top of the capital, there are engravings 
uh, of, and we have a picture here. Let me show you what the upper room looks like, first of all. It's big. Isn't it a little bigger than what you thought, right? Ceilings are quite vaulted. All right, next one. Here's another shot with people for sort of, you could fit, I mean, if you're really packing people in, if this was a GBC event, pre-COVID, we could get 600 people in this room, but, uh, okay. But it's this I want to talk to you about. These are the capitals on top of the pillars in the upper room. Now, it's a little hard to see because years have worn away the, the distinction, the clarity of what's being carved here, but in the center, there is a pelican. And on each side of that pelican are two smaller pelicans that's heads are dipped down and basically kissing or touching the chest of the center larger pelican. Let me tell you what this is. This is a motif that is used to describe the sacrifice of Jesus, okay? In the pelican world, they obviously raise their children, raise their young near water. And as water dries up, resources dry up, there's nothing to feed their babies, their young. So a mother pelican will actually scratch away at her chest and create a wound that bleeds. And the young pelicans will then support them, sustain themselves off of the sacrificial act of the mother. This has been used in the upper room motif. Now, when I said it in the staff meeting, everyone was like disgusted. And some of you are right here as well. And it's good. It's good. You should be. Because the idea of, of harming oneself, allowing oneself to be harmed at the expense of their own life and well-being for the well-being of the young, out of love and sacrifice, I mean, it's not hard to see why this has been used as a sacrifice of Jesus Christ for maybe thousands, maybe 2,000 years. How do you understand the sacrifice of Christ? In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. How is, is it just another day? Is it just the first Sunday of the month? How do you understand what it is we do here and how it points to what Jesus has done for us? I mean, take a minute to consider your heart's attitude. I have to admit, sometimes I sit there and I'm, all I'm thinking about is, okay, I can't forget to tell him to take the top off this way and then do this. I got to get the words right. I got and totally miss out. I leave the church thinking, darn it. I missed communion again, even though I took it with everybody. How is it that you understand what we are about to celebrate here when Christ points to his body and his blood given for us? Do you think of this whole idea sort of propositionally? Well, I know I have to believe certain things, and if as long as I believe those things, I'm okay. Or abstractly, maybe someone back there somehow out there died for me. Maybe you think of it metaphorically. Maybe it's just an idea. You have this detached sort of understanding. Maybe you have a lukewarm heart attitude about what Christ has done and what we celebrate here today. I have to tell you, the times that we gather for worship on a Sunday morning, it, it seems to me that Communion Sunday, that's our moment. It is the moment that we remember intentionally exactly what Christ has done, how he sacrificed himself for our behalf in the shape of how we worship on these days, and really how we worship every day of our life, is dictated by how we view the death of Christ on our behalf, the death that's symbolized in the Lord's Supper. So, as we look at this page, notice this passage is long. But it's important to note that timing is everything, and that's what I want to point out to us. We're going to go through the passage line by line. We're going to talk briefly about it. But in the end, I want us to note where the Lord's Supper is in relationship to what happens before and what happens after. That's the big idea of today's message. We didn't read it, but even before this message, this is, it's Judas getting ready to betray, betray Jesus 
at the end, we'll see that they all uh, are leaning towards falling away. So it's what's nestled in the middle. It's that promise of new hope, that promise of forgiveness in the Lord's Supper that we're going to see. Sometimes when something is said, where it's said, when it's said, says a lot more than the words themselves are seeking to communicate. There's a sandwich here, and so we're going to look at that. All right, so let's look at the text. We're going to work briefly through. Let's look on verse 12. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? They're pointing about Jesus as the sort of head of the household. In the Old Testament, there was a lamb was given for a certain amount of people. If you had too small of a family for the sacrificial lamb, you would lump families together and you would have a larger gathering. Well, Jesus is sort of the head of the household here, and so they're asking him, where is it that you should celebrate the Passover? Meaning, all of us, okay? 13, so he sent his two disciples, telling them to go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house as he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations there. Again, we saw what that place looks like. We saw how big it was, how many people could fit in there. Let's just say the Da Vinci painting is probably wrong um, for several reasons, but I think it's important to note here is that this is not just Jesus and the Twelve. The Last Supper was probably Jesus and the Twelve and all of the Twelve's families and all of the other disciples as well. So think about it. In this hot upper room, there may have been packed, I don't know, 60, 80 people to celebrate the Passover, Passover feast with Jesus, the disciples, and the disciples' family. Think of Peter. Do you think Peter would have left his family on Passover, perhaps the most important holiday of the Jewish uh, religion, to celebrate it with the guys, right? Probably not. I think that they would all be together. And so there's a big packed room full of people. Verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had said. Isn't that amazing? It's like Jesus had prepared everything exactly the way it should be. It shows how Jesus is in control. It happened like this too but uh, in uh, triumphal entry, and we're going to do that in a couple weeks. Jesus says, go ahead into the city there. You'll find a colt tied up. Bring that, tell the master, the master, tell the person the master needs it, and bring it back to me. And so we see Jesus in control of all the circumstances. As I was studying, um, a commentator says this, James Edwards, he says, the effect of both the stories... So not only Jesus knowing about the upper room, but also about the cult says this. The effect of both the stories is to show Jesus' knowledge and complete governance of events at his hour, as his hour of death approaches. Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in the events beyond his control. There's no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. This is important because we see Jesus moving the events toward the ultimate, the pinnacle of his ministry, his death for us. You see him slowing things down. Don't tell anyone who I am. We see the, him speeding things up, telling Judas in the book of Luke, go, go betray me, go. So we see him in sovereign control. Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now think about it. Be there in your mind. 
the upper room, 80 people, the din of a Passover feast with families. Maybe kids are spilling glasses, mothers are talking to them. There's side conversations. Jesus is there at the head table with his disciples. And suddenly he says, one of you will betray me. Think if it was your family. Think if it was a banquet, like a family reunion. Everyone's gathered together, and the head of the family gets up after everyone's celebrating, and in the middle of the, of the feast says, I know one of you is planning my death. Think of that moment. That's probably too true in some situations, but anyway. The record scratch moment. The mic drop moment. The silence moment. Feel the tension of that. After everything Christ has done, one of you will betray me. 19, they were saddened. And one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. One by one. They don't all just come in and say, not me, not me. They all one by one look at him. Jesus looks at them and Jesus is looking at you. Is it me? The way they say surely not I in the Greek indicates that they had to doubt. They doubt it. Might be me. I don't think it's me, but could it be me? And Jesus looks to each of them, and Jesus does not answer. In the end, we know that they all betray him, either by their greed or their fear or their weakness or their cowardice. But there is nothing. Let me. There's some sort of pillars of way of the way I view life, and this is one of these pillars I'm going to share with you right now. There is nothing more dangerous than the attitude in your heart that says, I would never do that. I could never do that. Now, it'd be easy for me to say with my history, drug abuse, prison time, after all, I've done some bad things. I never thought that I would do these things. And so you might sit here and say, well, I'm a good person. I go to work, I have a nice house, I raise my family, I do the best that I can, I give, I come to church, I do. That would ne- that's so outside of my wheelhouse. But I want to reassure you, this is important that we know, the human heart, and we'll learn this, the human heart, the depth of sin in the human heart is such that we are capable of anything giving the right, convert, the, the right circumstances. And that understanding, that humility that we carry, that sort of tentativeness, we see Peter cry out, you know, I will never fall away, and look what happens. And they all said the same. We are all capable of anything, given the right circumstances. So they had reason to doubt, and so should we. Verse 20, it's one of the twelve. Jesus narrows it. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. We know in another gospel that it's Judas who he's specifically talking about at that time. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You see, Jesus will go to the cross in accordance with Scripture. He'll be betrayed in accordance with Scripture. But we see this wonderful interplay here between man's will, free will, and God's sovereignty in moving providence along. Sometimes we say, well, I, you know, I had no choice. Other times we say, God's in control. Other times we say, I want my free will. We see this sort of mess. But this verse right here, really shows us the interplay. Here it is. Ready? We're responsible for everything that we do, and God is in control of every single outcome. How those two things work, I have no idea. Literally thousands of years, and battles have been fought on this theological proposition. 
We are responsible. And so we have no reason when we stand before God to say, I had no choice. Yet God's sovereignty is such that he controls every single outcome in our life. I heard someone say the other day, if it happened, it was God's will. That's a tough statement. But understood properly, I think it's true. I think it's true. It is immediately on the heels of this bombshell that Jesus offers hope. In the light of man's sin, Jesus foreshadows his very grace to them. 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. He holds up the bread, that mundane symbol of a Passover feast, and reassigns a meaning to it. This, my body. It's interesting in the Greek, it doesn't mean like this is my flesh. Right? Some, some Christians believe that the bread becomes the actual flesh of Jesus, but that's a different word in Greek. That's not the word that's being used. What Jesus is saying is essentially, because it's a little bit idiomatic, what essentially he's saying is, this is all of me. This is my being given for you. This is my wholeness offered up to you. Technology. But I was ready this time. It's not going to get me. In Luke it says, it says that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate and remember, commemorate what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf in his death for us. 23, when he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he reassigns this cup. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, to understand what he's saying here, you have to know, we call this the new covenant. We have to understand what the old covenant was. In the Old Testament, there was a covenant made called the Mosaic Covenant, in which Everything was done through the sacrificial system. They would find an animal that was one year old without blemish and sacrifice it to cover, atone for sin. Well, this went the same way for everything within the place of worship as well. So the tabernacle, all of the pieces in there needed to be covered in the blood of an animal that was sacrificed, an innocent animal, on behalf of the worshipers. So there's a scene where they slaughter an animal, they collect its blood, they sprinkle it all over the tabernacle, the place of worship, and they even throw it on the people of Israel, covered in blood. It was the death of that animal that God said will cover your sin. That's the old covenant. Well, when Christ came, he died as the once-for-all final sin, the forever sacrifice, whose blood is perpetually upon us. By faith. And so he says, this red wine represents that blood, my blood. That is the new covenant that you are covered in that allows you to come before God the Father clean and perfect, even though you're not. The new, requir- new covenant required another blood sacrifice, not of animals, but of Jesus himself. True, uh, 25. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In the Passover feast, there were four cups that were passed. This is probably the final cup. As it's going around, Jesus declares these words. It's important to know that Jesus is not making a commentary on whether or not we should drink wine. What Jesus is making a commentary on is that surely in the future will come a time when I will drink this cup of celebration in the new kingdom with you. We call that the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb. One day when all is consummated and we stand before the throne celebrating at a feast, Jesus will pick up a cup 
and he'll say, this is the cup I was talking about. This is the cup that we will drink together now when the kingdom is consummated. What a beautiful picture. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right. First pelican, baby pelican. The pelican of betrayal. On one side of Jesus promising to offer himself. On the other, we have the pelican of weakness. It says, we, Jesus says, around the Mount of Olives says, you will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead into Galilee with you. Peter declared, even if everyone falls away, I'm not going to fall away, typical Peter. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die, I will never disown you. And this is the line, and all others said the same. Everyone said they would never betray Jesus. They would never leave him. They would never fall away. Baby pelican, one side, betrayal. Baby pelican on the other side, human weakness. And there's Jesus right in the middle, offering himself, promising us through grace and his sacrificial death that he would save those. Now, some remarks can be made from the passage that we really have to embrace. So this is sort of, I'm going to go fast. Not because it's not important, but because we just packed the whole bunch into a worship service. And I want to get us to the point where we can remember what Christ has done. I want to get us to the point where we can say, yes, I see now. I see better in this moment. We're going to forget because we're quick forgetters, aren't we, in that life? But I want to get us to the point of communion. All right. A couple of things to point out. First, the depth of human heart, the depth of sin in the human heart knows no bounds. Sin, we often talk about as this moral idea, and that's true. It's rebellion against God. It's not just doing God's will. It's rebellion against him. It's this moral rot that happens in our life, in our heart, in every aspect of our being that is contrary and exalts itself against God the Father, against the will of God. We know, of course, sin has other consequences. It affects every area of our lives. It affects every area of the, crea of the creation, including nature. To paraphrase friends of mine, it's incurable, progressive, and fatal. Sin will always kill us. It will always get worse if left unchecked. And there's nothing that we of ourselves can do anything. We are helpless and lost both victim and, vic and predator. We are completely unable to save ourselves because the sin that exalts itself between us and God. As we talked about the pelican of betrayal, which we give Judas a hard time. I mean, he, after all, he is the betrayer of betrayers. And the whole story of at least the human aspect of it in the Bible, Jesus or Judas is the betrayer. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel that really uncomfortable feeling in my heart when I read about him. When I see that after he betrayed Jesus, he felt guilty and ran back and threw the money back at the priests. That later on he goes and he kills himself out of guilt for what he's done, betraying an innocent man. I look at his attitude when he's the treasurer and gets upset that a woman in gratitude wastes money upon Jesus preparing his body. When I look at what he says and how he values life and how he wants to conquer and be conqueror again and to see Israel ascend and take its rightful place, I see this fleshy sort of, you know what? I relate to him. I relate to him. 
I see his choices, his priorities, his actions, and I know that I'm not far from that. I know that some of us aren't either, because you talk to me honestly. I don't suggest that we give Judas a pass. I don't suggest we give ourselves a pass either. But I suggest we recognize what we're capable of. That we recognize what we are able to do given the right circumstances. And sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to scare us, to move us off. So we need to really wrestle with the idea that we are sinners in the most comprehensive sense of the word. The New Testament says we invent ways to sin. Invent them. But let's take a look at the other side of the coin. The depth of sin in the human heart knows no bounds, but the breadth of grace in Jesus Christ knows no bounds either. Nestled between these two vignettes of sin in the text today, we see Jesus' giving of himself, foreshadowing his death in the Lord's Supper, despite the complete unworthiness of the people for whom he died. In all of us, by extension, he points ahead to his sure death by grace, because we've deserved nothing. He says, I will die for you. And when I go, think about this. We have the luxury of looking back and knowing his death on the cross, but they didn't. So one day after he dies and they come together and they sell, they remember that he held the bread, that he held the cup, and it all perhaps was made clear at that time that Christ by grace gave himself for us. And Christ, it's no secret, it's no surprise I should say, that Jesus does this during the time, the festival of Passover. In Passover, there was a lamb that was sacrificed to atone for the sin of the people, and Jesus is even called the Passover lamb by Paul. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because he died for us, and we've had our sins atoned, let's live differently. Let's live differently. I mean, Jesus Christ took our sin and was made sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus' grace knows no bounds, we're completely freed from the power and penalty of sin. Consider this. Consider all the grace received. Consider all who received grace in the Bible. Let me say that. Look at those who were forgiven. David, a rapist and a murderer. Yeah, rapist. We give him a pass and we say he was just some adulterous king. I think there's pretty good reason to think that he raped Bathsheba. Rapist. Murderer. Peter. The proud betrayer. Onesimus. The thief. Speaking of thief, how about the thief on the cross? Who knows what he did? We know he stole something, but in that moment hung there and had faith in Jesus Christ. Grace, by grace, did nothing. Never said the sinner's prayer, never took communion, never got baptized, nothing. Faith, Lord, save me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Grace. The woman caught in adultery, who according to Mosaic law should have been stoned, go and sin no more. The prostitute. Paul, the killer and persecutor of Christians. Consider who by grace have been healed. The blind. The infertile, those who would never have a child, suddenly with child. The possessed, the hated, Matthew, 
a tax collector, given the grace of a ministry, once who is one who is far from the people of Israel because he cheated his own countrymen, was brought near. Those not healed of their physical infirmities were given grace to persevere through them. Think of the hope. Those not healed of those physical infirmities have hope by grace that one day they will be healed. Often we pray for the healing of our loved ones. Lord, heal me or heal my friend. And then they die and we say, I guess it wasn't the Lord's will. No. The Lord's will was to heal them completely. It's the Lord's will that we will all be one day healed completely in our relationships, in our physical infirmities, everything by grace. Those who trust in Christ have a hope because of the promised deliverance from evil. Victory over justice, the promise of a new day that when all is tainted by sin, all of it will be gone forever. Neither pain, nor crying, nor mourning. We look at Revelation, that's like, my, I need that. That's what I want. By grace. By grace. In John it says, we've all received fullness, his fullness, Jesus, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. When I got out of prison, I didn't have anything. I mean, my mom and dad bought me clothing. I had, like, toothbrush and stuff like that. But I had no job, no car, nothing to support myself. And somebody asked me, how can I help? I said, I could really use a vehicle. They let me use their van. So I got this van. I started using it to do home improvement projects. I was doing uh, tradesman kind of stuff. One day they call me. They say, we need our van. We're going on vacation, a family vacation. So I bring it back. And when I bring it back, he says, now here's the keys to my other car. Grace upon grace. That is what we have from Jesus Christ. We just don't get a little. We get everything pressed down, pouring over everything. Everything by grace. We get our salvation for God so loved the world that whomever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So it's by faith that that grace is unlocked. It's the keys to the kingdom is our faith. And here, let me tell you this. This is like even our faith is a gift of grace that God has bestowed upon us in his love and goodness. We have done nothing, family, nothing for our salvation. He has done everything. And it's when we understand that, the depth of our own sin and the breadth of God's grace, that the height of our worship grows large. Because it's dictated by it, that's number three, the heart of our worship is dictated by our grasp of both the depth of our sin in the breath of Jesus' grace. And I just don't mean worship here today. I mean the way we live, isn't it? It's the way we live. We live a life of understanding that we're a sinner, and we also live a life of understanding that Jesus' grace is larger than we can ever imagine. That we could ever imagine. Listen to this passage in Ephesians. We read it all the time, but just I want to read it again because God's word is powerful, and it tells us, listen, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses. We were dead, family, dead. Not a weak heartbeat, dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in, the, in those who are disobedient. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But listen to this one word, but. Our previous situation, helpless, dead. But Christ, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. What was dead was made alive like that. 
for by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one may boast. We were completely lost. We're completely lost now apart from Jesus. Yet because of his grace, we have life. If we only see the horror of our sin and the depths of our sin nature, we fail to believe and embrace the absolute forgiveness and freedom that Jesus Christ extends to us. We'll say things like, yes, but if you only knew what I really did. Or we'll say things like, well, God may have forgiven me, but he's not really happy with me. Or God cannot forgive that class of people that commit that type of sin. God's grace is so unbelievable that when we say and we feel that guilt of the sin we've committed and we sit here and we take this cup and we realize that God has forgiven everything and not only has he given us everything and forgiven us of everything, he only, you're my child, I love you. Here, take this, gifts, blessing. But I don't deserve it, I know. But I love you, so I'm giving you more. When we understand the depth of our sin and the breadth of God's grace, our worship knows no bounds. This realization should grow as we mature in Christ. When we worship in here through music on a Sunday morning, I feel like the ones who should be jumping up in the seats, the ones who should be shouting, the ones should be you old-timers. Worship in this room should be motivated and, and led by those who have walked with the Lord the longest. They've seen his faithfulness. They know their sin, and they see his grace. As we mature, we understand, we should understand more and more, a deeper sense of the grace that God has lavished upon us. i got to be honest with you. As I studied all of this, as I read this, I kept having these moments where I was just, I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it. But everything this week was telling me that we need to get to this communion. And so I, this was disheveled. This was quick. This is our moment. This is our moment. And so each of you should have received a cup as you came in. If you did not receive one, I'd like you to raise your hand so we can make sure that we get one. Okay. When he comes back in, make sure you raise your hand again, Kim. I want you to think about this. Each week, uh, Kim over there, each week, and some up here, when we celebrate communion each month and that top gets ripped off, you know what I hear? That's the sound of a soul being freed. So when I sit down and I listen to everyone, that's what I'm thinking about is all of your hearts being restored and made new again in Christ. So I want you to think about that. So you've received a cup. On the top, you have a small wafer. On the bottom, you have the juice. For those of you who are visiting, there's a top piece, the cellophane. You take that off. This is the bread. This is what Jesus is pointing to when he says, this, my body, this, all of me, broken, that you might have life. This represents who I am, the life that I give. And then he took the cup, that's the juice here. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Not only the death that I died on the cross to atone for your sins, but the promise of a coming kingdom. The promise of a time when we will celebrate again with the cup at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I want you to take just a moment. Michael and the band are going to play some uh, musical interlude. I want you to take time to sp and just really 
consider with the Lord the depth of your sin. It's okay. Go there. And I want you to think about the grace that he's lavished upon you and then believe what he says about you, that you're forgiven and restored and blessed beyond compare. And when you have your time with the Lord, go ahead and take your communion, and then we'll go through the rest of the service. Father, we're forgetful people, and sometimes we forget to even thank you for the gifts that you've given us. And Lord, I I forgot to pray for the elements. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the bread, your body given for us. We thank you, Lord, for the juice, your blood poured out for the remission of sins that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you for this day that you've brought us to, Lord. May your spirit move in us as we worship you and exalt you for what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCM. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.